Hi, I'm Taylor Carmen. I'm a philosophy professor at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I write books and teach classes about things like existentialism and the meaning of life and truth and beauty and all that. And, and I'm Eric Kaplan, uh, and I'm a TV writer in Hollywood with a PhD in philosophy. And you are listening to Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, a podcast in which we reflect on unsettling and terrifying questions and talk them through and think about them and try to uh, get to a place of courage. So, Taylor, what's a terrifying question for this week? Our terrifying question for this week is, are all human relationships struggles for domination? Hmm. And is that a terrifying question because we're afraid we will lose and get dominated? Or is, would it be terrifying <laughs> even if we won? Uh, it could be either one. Maybe a first pass is, uh-oh, it's a game and I hope I don't lose. But I think the next one would be, oh, God, it's nothing but a game. It's nothing but a battle. And that makes it look very grim and dark, right? If it's just winners and losers and there's no peace and no tranquility and maybe no love. Right. It sounds, on the face of it, really disturbing. Right, right. Now, now Conan said that the highest thing in life is to kill the enemy, ride his horses, and hear the lamentations of his women. Is that it, this view? Is that what we're considering? That the highest thing in life... That barbarian we're talking about, not O'Brien. Yeah, Conan the barbarian. Yeah, no, no. And, and we should probably call him the Conan, the, the, seden, <laughs> the sedentary pastoralist, um, rather than the barbarian. But, yeah, but is, yeah. is this view that... The highest thing is to kill people and listen to the lamentation of his women? Or or is it something more mild? Or what is the view that we're worrying about? No, it doesn't have to be that. Well, yeah, everything hinges on what we might mean by the word domination. Yeah, right. So it sounds bad. And I guess it's, yeah, I think everybody would probably agree it's kind of bad. The question is, how bad is it? It doesn't necessarily mean killing, maiming, torturing. It could just be much more subtle and insidious and, you know, power sort of relations in which somebody's getting the better of the asymmetry of the relationship. Right. You might put it that way. Like, are all human relationships bound to be asymmetrical in terms of power somehow? Right. Okay. I, I just want to figure this all out because yeah. let's say that you and I are trying to drag a boat because it's it's gotten too muddy and we need to drag it. Yeah. And you happen to be stronger than me. And I happen to be weaker than you. So therefore, you're dragging at 55% and I'm dragging at 45%. Uh -huh. That's not a problem. That's not the kind of asymmetry we're worrying about, right? That's not, although you could see it as an opportunity for me to sort of, since I'm doing most of the work, you're kind of slightly dependent on me, aren't you? So I might lord that over you somehow. And like, if you lord it over me. Yeah. So that seems like, do all human relationships involve some element of one person saying to the other, I'm better than you, and you're worse than me, and the other person sucking it up? Well, Is that the... well, it depends, right? If I've got more stuff than you, and I, like Rousseau said, put a fence around it and say, this is mine, and now, you know, what are you going to do for me? That's bad. That's the emergence of inequality yes. in human relationships. And there's a lot of inequality already, and that gives some people more power. And then the question is, is there any such thing as getting out of that completely? Right. I guess the thing that I was trying to... Um separate yeah. was it's not simply that we don't all have exactly equal power right which seems impossible how could we all have exactly equal power like all right all rocks aren't exactly the same <laughs> weight you know right um but that we use that to form into relationships of domination and submission where one person says how it's going to go and the other person has to 
accommodate themselves to the first person's wishes. Right. That's a, that's what we're worried about. Right. And that's a, you're right. That's a different thing because there's no reason that de facto inequalities would necessarily necessarily be, as I was saying, invitations to exercising power. That that has to be an initiative somebody takes. Of like they notice that they've got leverage, and so now why would they use it in these particular ways? Yeah. Right. So I think there may be a division among people who think that there is some kind of balance or equilibrium of perfect equality, not de facto, like we're all the same height or weight or whatever, but that we all have mutual respect for each other's freedom. And then there's other people who are a bit more, you might call them realists, by which I don't mean that's a good or a bad thing, but who think there's never going to be a perfect equilibrium. There's always somehow imbalances and asymmetries and conflict, and that's just the drama of human life. And that can lead to domination and exercises of power that are hurtful and so on. But you can believe that and not necessarily think that actual domination in the worst sense of the word, violence, exploitation, and um, so on, are inevitable. You just might think we're constantly on a kind of inclined plane where we're always slipping into that more or less and having to pull against it to keep it from getting out of control. Right. Okay. Okay. So now that we know that that's what it is. Is every human relationship characterized by that relationship of domination and submission? Well, so to put my cards on the table, I guess what I think is that it's a permanent danger of human relationships, but it's not an inevitable consequence. So I think there probably are people who think that violence and domination, again, in the clearly negative sense of the word. I have worked for more than <laughs> one of those people. They probably just think to be a real realist, you know, in the hard bitten kind of sense, you better just admit that it's a dog eat dog world and that's how it is. I don't believe that. There are philosophers who are known to have what a lot of people think are sort of cynical or nihilistic views. Sartre and Foucault in particular, who I think have slightly more nuanced views that human relationships are kind of power dynamics. There's power dynamics that define them, and you're never going to get out of that into a kind of utopia of perfect mutual respect and room for everybody's freedom without any conflicts. Um, you can think that there's this inherent instability in human relationships that leads to domination and open conflict and not think that that's just all there is to it is open warfare. But Sartre and Foucault both said things that when you take them at face value can sound very cynical, like um, we're just constantly at war with each other. Or Sartre says the other is my metaphysical enemy. The other is his metaphysical enemy. Yeah, yeah. He, he says Why is that. the other his metaphysical enemy? And what does it mean to be a metaphysical enemy? And who was Sartre? Well, let's start with this last yeah. question first. <laughs> who was he? When did he... When did he ply his trade? <laughs> Jean-Paul Sartre was, uh, he was really the most famous of the 20th century existential philosophers, because unlike most philosophers or philosophy professors, teachers, he, he really got famous writing novels and plays and being a public intellectual and a kind of superstar. Uh, he was born in 1905 and lived until 1980. And he was not only a philosopher, but like I said, a playwright, a novelist, a critic, a political activist and commentator. He was really kind of a Renaissance man, as they used to say. And his great big early book, which is still the most famous thing he wrote and the most read among philosophers, is this big, what is it, 700-page tome called Lettre et le Néant, Being a Nothingness. And there's a long chapter in it, it's probably 100 pages or something, about our relations with others. And by the way, he wrote a play, which I think you know, called Huiclo, which is No Exit. Yes, I read that. The premise of that was 
let me know if I recall this correctly. I think a man, no, I just remember there was a man and two women and they <laughs> genuinely got on each other's nerves. Oh, that's true. And they, it really was a bad scene and it turned out that it was hell. So you tell me the actual story of No Exit. Actual, what was going on? So the actual story is the three of them who don't know each other before this wind up in the room. Mm-hmm. And they know they're in hell already. Okay. So here's hell. And they're expecting, you know, fire and tongs and torture devices and so on. But it's this sort of, I think it's, what did they say? Like Edwardian kind of furniture, a little tacky and tasteless, but, but there they are. And there's nothing to do. And they have nothing to do but sit around and be with each other. And they get to know each other. And it turns into a very, well, dramatic it's a kind of triangle. It kind of turns into a kind of love triangle, but it's a love-hate conflict among the three of them. They've died, obviously, and they each have some sort of terrible secret about the way their lives went badly and they screwed things up. And then they kind of, yeah, they use this partly to seduce each other and partly to torture each other. And and they're in there with each other for eternity. And so it is a kind of hell. And the the line that uh, the man says at one point um, in the French, he's called Garcin, says, uh, hell is uh, les autres, other, others or other people. And that's, that's maybe, it's again one of the most quoted phrases of Sartre's, hell is other people. And it can sound just really grim and pessimistic, right? Hell is other people and it sucks and there's no way out of it. Uh, he did think there's no way out of it and it's dramatic. And why did he not think that hell was loneliness ah you see i would feel like being trapped in that room without these two women would be worse uh well interesting um here's where it gets philosophically interesting yeah okay let's cut to the philosophy so i think what's interesting about the premise of the play is that that was just given as a fact in the play but i think sartre thinks it is a fact about uh human life that we are with others i mean he's sort of agreeing with Heidegger, not exactly, when Heidegger says our being is being with, being with others. Uh, Sartre does think, at least de facto, that is true. Now, there could be an animal like a wasp (laughs) that's born, it goes around and it collects food, it lays its eggs in a caterpillar and it dies, and then another one is born... And it never is with other wasps, uh, theoretically. Yeah, yeah. But it, that's not humans. Well, um, ah, so this is interesting. I think Sartre doesn't think that's in principle impossible for us. For humans. Yeah. Like you could imagine some weird science fiction story where I'm yes. born on a planet. Yeah. And there's the tools for a cloning machine. Yeah. And I hang out there and right. whatever. I don't know what I would do. But I take a cell, and when I'm a very old man, I put it in the egg incubator, (laughs) and then a baby is born and reads the book, and it it repeats the cycle until the the sun goes out, right? Yeah, sure. And that sounds like that would be less fun than being in that hotel room (laughs) with those two women. Well, I don't know. I mean, if you never had any contact with any other people or consciousness as Sartre would say mm-hmm. maybe you wouldn't know what you were missing and maybe it would I'm just, sure that's true yeah so so I think see since Sartre is thinking about us in terms of consciousness he really thinks that what we are is consciousness okay I think maybe that's the reason he thinks there's no reason to say that would be impossible there could just be mm-hmm. one single solitary consciousness what does he think that that person would think about uh, I think he thinks Now, here's where, again, it really gets interesting. I'm speculating a little because Sartre is a little inconsistent about this, but here's what I think he thinks. The only reason we can think about ourselves as selves or persons, that's like the the, the only reason I can think of myself as Taylor Carmen or I can worry about whether I'm tall or not or Mm -hmm. smart or anything like that or even what I look like is thanks to other people. So if there if there could be this completely solipsistic, isolated consciousness, I don't think Sartre thinks it could think of itself as a person. 
with with objective qualities or features or anything like that. It would be a kind of empty ego onto the world. Right. Yeah. And if it was just if it was just flying around yeah. and collecting uranium yeah. to power its its uh, <laughs> clone tank. Right. <laughs> it's not clear to me it would be conscious. It seems like it would almost be like a. Um, like a, a filter or well, something like, <laughs> like that. Um, well, it depends, again, I mean, on what you mean by conscious. I think if by conscious you just mean sentient and having some kind of intentionality directed objects, uh, there's lots of animals, I, do, I think, that do have you, that. Yeah. Anne or Sartre, think it could write music while it's passing its time away and be like, well, this is a lovely song I've written? Uh I, I think there, there's all kinds of problems with trying to flesh out that, so to speak, that uh, scenario. Because, like, would it have the concept of music? I mean, don't we owe that concept to the language we speak and share with others where we all talk about this thing, music? Right. Or impossibly, do we owe it to wanting to mate? Is it somehow a love song? Maybe that's right. You know? That's right. I mean, I would know. this creature have anything like sexuality? I think Sartre thinks it wouldn't have human sexuality, and no other animals have human sexuality. Human sexuality is this social relation to others, other-directed Would it reflect on its mortality, do you think? Would this being be uh, like, the sun will go out someday, and perhaps I'll write a song uh, <laughs> about the dying of the sun? I don't think, I think Sartre, uh, he does talk about this when he's talking in the chapter about death. Uh, I think it's pretty clear he thinks that without others, you couldn't possibly reflect on that. Uh-huh. Because he thinks of death and birth as things that are completely external to your consciousness. And one reason is that you, you've been told that this is what happens. Um, ah, and you, you don't have any firsthand familiarity with it or experience of it. And maybe, again, maybe animals without a certain kind of at least linguistic consciousness and thought have no idea that there's anything like their own birth or death or anything like that. They're, they're happily oblivious to it. So I'm pretty sure Sartre would say they couldn't think about that. No. Let's take a quick little break. Yes. And yes. I'll come back to this very interesting question. Is the soul of a man. Okay, so we, us, yeah. we, us, we, us, we yeah. people, we're, we're social. We, we're social. Yeah. And how does he get from that to saying that the, our sociality is inherently hellish? Ah, here's the reason, and it's interesting, and I think this is one of the best moves that Sartre ever makes philosophically, because when philosophers have worried about our relations to other minds, it's almost always by framing the problem as how do I know that there are other minds? Mm-hmm. How do I know that there are other consciousnesses? And so I'm looking around the world, and I see all these objects, and oh, there's this one object which happens to sort of look a lot like me, or my body, I should right. say. There's this other body that looks like my body, and hey, I'm conscious, <laughs> and maybe there's a consciousness there, and then it looks like a completely speculative, hypothetical analogy that by analogy I think maybe there's a consciousness in there and so on and that looks pretty hopeless because it looks like a wild hypothesis or an induction based on one case which is my own Uh, and Sartre turns the tables on that and says that's actually not the phenomenon that's not our experience of others he thinks more basic than my experience of being aware of another is the feeling of being seen by somebody else Uh where I'm the object of tell the story Tell the story about the keyhole Ah, to the folks at home, because that's a good story. Well, if I can, just I want to preface it with a different story. There's two stories he tells, but he leads up to that. The first story is I'm sitting in the park... And again, I'm not a solipsistic ego. I'm, I know there's others around, right? And so but one way to see others is to be sitting in the park and there's somebody walking across the park in front of me and I see them walking. Now, Sartre thinks that by knowing that's a consciousness, a conscious person, 
uh, that already kind of distorts my experience of the space I'm yeah, sharing. Yeah, what does he mean person. when he says that that person in the park is like a drain hole? Yeah, yeah. That's sucking the whole universe I love that. down. I think this is one of the best images. He's, got, he's very colorful with images. It's really great. Uh, it's because I know that that person sees all the other things around us. And it's as if his well, gaze very cool. is like pulling them in. When I see him walking toward a tree that distance is kind of collapsed because I see that he's seeing that tree. He's like almost at it just by knowing it's there. Huh. Whereas if it was just a sort of rock rolling down a hill towards the tree. Well, if there was another person equidistant from the tree, could he his gaze <laughs> pull it back and keep the drain hole? Maybe. Maybe there's two drain maybe. holes in there. For, they're all, I, I can already see them like in tension with each other. And there's something like... There's something right about that, too, because if I see two people walking towards each other together and they're heading right for each other, I might start getting interested in are they going to walk right past each other? Are they going to stop? Is Are they going to avoid each other? I mean, uh, we're already kind of polarized in relation to each other in a way that's distorting. Right. He says this very interesting thing that if that's a mannequin yeah. who's in the chair, yeah. that's not seated in the chair. That's sort of on the chair, yeah. the way a pile of rocks could be on the chair. That's good. But once it's a person who's sitting in the chair... Yeah then they're at home in the chair and that sort of is pulling my understanding of the scene in a different direction. Yeah. And I thought that was cool. I thought that's true. That's, there's really something right about that. And it makes the chair different. It's like it's pulling the chair into hit that person's project, that person's right. sitting. The sitting, the chair yes. is now sort of um, appropriated into the sitting in a way that it wouldn't be if there's books stacked on it. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And if you imagine sort of like there's a pool and then suddenly somebody comes running in, fire, fire, then suddenly that water is like, oh, he's going to want that fire to put out, want yeah. that water to put out the fire. Yeah. That's all true. Okay. That's interesting. So there's the way in which the other is sort of sucking the world in. That's already kind of, uh, this is already, we're getting a little bit of the metaphysical enemy story here. The other is this gravitational force that's pulling the world in. And in a way, it's robbing me a little bit of the world. The world. Well, He's not my enemy yet, I think, because uh, if what he's doing is throwing a surprise party for me, <laughs> then he's my friend because he's sucking me into something that's better than where I am. But here, okay, but the well, I know I think the enemy part is creeping in here because if that person is this drain hole that the world is seeping into or being pulled into, it's being pulled a little bit away from my projects. My point of view is being challenged in a way, or at least there's now this competing uh, force of gravity. Oh, okay. So I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna say something, and I don't, yeah. maybe I'm jumping the gun okay. here. But do you ever read Carolyn Hacks? No, she's an advice columnist for the Washington Post. Mm -mm. No. Nope. Well, she's people write in with the questions, and one of the questions is: some women are like, "We have a friend who's recently became a widow, and she's really going downhill, and she's drinking, and her house is a mess, and she never goes out anymore, and we want to help her." So we're thinking of coming in and saying, we're going to clean your house for you for a day. Mm. And, and their question is, is that overstepping her boundaries too much? Mm. And the advice columnist, she basically, she has a better idea than doing it all in one day. And mm. it's, it's, she's, mm -hmm. I think her column is well worth reading. But what she says is, don't worry so much about overstepping somebody's boundaries because they need help. Mm -hmm. And... If I put myself in the position of that woman who's sinking into depression and alcoholism, that other person throwing me a life raft by going into my house and helping me clean up or saying, hey, do you want me to make you some cinnamon toast or something? Um, they're helping me. They're sure. not my metaphysical enemy. They're my <laughs> metaphysical friends. <laughs> well, I th I, I'm channeling Sartre here. I think Sartre might say... 
just by being her friend, you have already overstepped her boundaries. You are inside her sphere of concern and right, so on. Right, but good, because good. she's making yeah. a mess of it. She's, of in this story, she's making a mess of it with her projects. She's right. going down the drain. Um, yeah. And overstepping her boundaries is a way to get her out of that um, sinkhole. It sees another person going down a sinkhole, but is a sinkhole coming from her unfortunate circumstance. Okay, yeah, the very interesting question. If you've got a friend who needs help, do you step in and help them? And now the friends who wrote to the advice columnist saying, are we overstepping the boundaries or is this too intrusive? I think they had a genuine worry. I'm not saying what the advice should have been. But the reason they asked that question, I think, was there's a genuine reason to worry about that. Because oftentimes, even when you're offering help, uh, at least what you think is help, and even if it is genuinely help, and even if the person knows you're trying to help them, they might still have some kind of reason not to want people stepping in and helping. And the basic reason is that they could be very ashamed of their neediness, right, of their vulnerability. They could say, no, 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 I don't need help, I don't need help, and it's not just that they're being modest, it's that they feel it as an intrusion because it's humiliating to need other people's help like that, and they want to maintain a kind of dignity. So this situation could cut either way. I think that's what Sartre is describing, is that right. you are you are at other people's mercy in a certain way already from the beginning because how they view you is not up to you. That's the bottom line. Okay. Um, yeah. How they view you is not up to you. That's right. Yeah. So you, right. are at, you are at their mercy in a certain... Now, they may be benevolent and they'll help and they'll be fine, but you also have to know that now Sartre thinks in every relationship, they are holding the key in a way. They could turn on you at any point, even in very subtle ways. And even these well-intentioned friends could very subtly be patronizing and say, you just sit down, we'll take care of it, as if... We know you can't do these things, and we know you're incompetent and whatever. So all that's just lurking right around the corner as a possibility, and that, Sartre thinks, is a kind of permanent threat that faces me in my relations to others. Now, there is this next story, which you were asking about, mm-hmm. the keyhole story, mm-hmm. and this is Let's an interesting, this is the really interesting turn, and, and this story gets us closer to what Sartre thinks is the really fundamental level of my relations to others. Okay. And he says, <laughs> suppose I'm at a door looking into a keyhole. I'm peering in because I want to see what's going on in there. So it's already, it's already like, what the hell are you doing peering into a keyhole? But he says, just, you know, I, here I am. And I want to look in you there think, and see what's going is on. It, I was reading that. And I was yeah. like, is somebody undressing? Like, what's he doing? Well, yeah, I guess it's left to our imagination. I imagine, okay. I imagine it's a jealous lover. Who's, he does mention jealousy. Yeah, it's definitely jealousy. I think, I think there's a question, is there someone in there with her? And who is it? I see. And uh, yeah. Now, I want to now just view these two people as objects. So it's not quite like the man in the park where I'm visible so I know that this person walking across the park could also look over and see me. He doesn't, mm-hmm. but he could. But here's a case in which I want to be invisible. I don't want to be seen. I'm just a eye looking through this hole and seeing the scene if I can see it. And now Sartre says, imagine that I hear behind me footsteps coming down the stairs. Boom. What happens? There's this immediate gestalt shift, you might say, and everything is redirected and reoriented. So now I feel... Like, I'm caught or I'm about to be caught in the gaze of the other. The other person's going to turn around the corner, maybe coming down the stairs, and they're going to see me peering into a keyhole, which is shameful, and I'm embarrassed or I feel guilty or whatever. And now I am really at the mercy of that person because I'm really objectified by their gaze. Right. And now Sartre wants to say, even though that's a very particular story he's telling and it doesn't happen every day, he thinks that kind of experience is at the bottom of all of our relations to others, is that the feeling of being exposed to their gaze 
is primitive. That's the fundamental uh, experience. The reason I think that's really philosophically ingenious is because it gets right around. It completely circumvents this epistemological problem about how do I know that there are others, other minds, other consciousnesses? Because I think Sartre thinks you're never going to solve that problem in an adequate way. Because the fundamental experience is that when somebody sees you, there's no way to doubt it. Right. You cannot be a Cartesian skeptic and doubt that there's another gaze there. The gaze is felt by you in a primitive way that's below the threshold of having a belief about it or knowing about it or or being able to justify that belief. You experience it. And you experience that they're seeing you, not just your clothes or your skin or your body. It's you that's exposed to their gaze. And he thinks there's, that's just rock bottom okay. uh, experience. I like that kind of I like it yeah. too. Yeah. So we are exposed to each other's gaze. That's and right. what I sort of like about it is also you could claim you could rationalize your way out of it. Yeah. And, and be like, you can try. Oh, excuse me. I, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I'm scratching my eyebrow on the key <laughs> uh, or some foolish thing yeah, like right. that. But no one's buying it, least of all yourself. Yeah. And so you're clapped in the prison of, of the other's gaze. Yeah. And you are forced to view yourself as a shameful being even if you try and rationalize your way out of it. Right, and which we do, not only, yeah, so we try to do that. I thought you were going to say something a little different. Not only can we not make excuses, although we can. We can try to make excuses. Um, let's say somebody caught you seeming to do something. Oh, yeah, there's a Seinfeld episode where somebody in the next car looks over and Jerry's scratching the side of his nose and it looks like he's got his finger up his nose. And he, he thinks, says, yeah, he keeps saying no penetration. Saying, no, no, penetration. no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> right, so now imagine that kind of scene where you've got a good excuse and it may be hard to convince the person, but you're in the right. And here's a different defensive reaction, which is, well, yeah, they saw me leaning over and looking through the keyhole. But that's not the real me. I mean, they don't know what's going on. They don't know whether I've got a good reason or not. And I'm not even going to bother making excuses because even if they think it's something shameful, what do I care? You can try to reassert your independence. Sort of dissociation. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. But now Sartre thinks that's a reaction to something that's already happened, which is you were exposed. It was them. It was you that they saw. So, yeah, so begins a kind of battle to sort of be in, as it were, the subject position rather than the object position. And Sartre thinks that we're kind of always going back and forth, flip-flopping between one and the other. And there's no real happy equilibrium or balance middle position in which we're neither just subjects nor objects. We're always kind of flip-flopping in terms of who's got the, as it were, subjectivity and freedom of the look or the gaze on their side and who's being kind of pinned by it on the other. Well, now, now hang on just a second, though. Because supposing, um, but let's make this a full-on 19th century uh, story, you know, mm. that music teacher is this cad, and he's trying to seduce my innocent wife, yeah. <laughs> and I'm there looking through the keyhole, uh-huh, yeah. and you come there and you see me, and you're like, mm-hmm. Eric, why are you looking through that keyhole? Yeah. And I'm like, Taylor, that music teacher uh-huh. is trying to seduce my wife. He might try and seduce your wife, too. Come look, too. Like, <laughs> couldn't see. we both get on the same team here? Maybe. Um, Maybe, although... Um, then, then we're co-subjects yeah. against this dastardly music teacher. <laughs> but the revealing moment is before you start explaining the situation to me, there surely was a little moment, especially if you didn't know it was me coming down the stairs, right? True. That first moment where your immediate reaction is one of, let's just call it embarrassment. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sartre says shame, but it's a kind of what he calls primitive shame. 
you're being seen. You're just about to be seen in this compromising position. Now, you may be able to talk your way out of it, but that first moment is the one, what he's really trying to focus on is your, call it the gut level reaction of being seen. And that, he thinks, is the clue to our relations to others. But what I'm sort of wondering is, there are people who love to be seen. Uh Ah, yes, yes. And one reason they might love to be seen is they might want to get people Uh on the same project of theirs, in my case, to to expose this dastardly seductive music teacher. Yeah. So, like, I want to be seen because I want everybody to be on the team. Right. Other people might, in a more primitive way, just like to be seen. Yeah. They just like showing off. So why are we focusing so much on the case where it goes bad? Because certainly, if, you know, I peed my pants and someone saw me, that's very embarrassing. Who wants that? Yeah. But why is that going to be the paradigm case for my interactions with others for JPS? Right. So here's where, to make this philosophically plausible, Sartre has to start stretching or bending the definitions of the words a little. Okay. Because what he thinks is this primitive shame, and he does call it shame. Mm-hmm. This primitive shame is not the opposite of, and it doesn't exclude, pride. That's the usual opposite. Mm-hmm. But pride is a kind of primitive shame, he thinks. So the primitive or primordial shame uh, involves both feelings of pride and feelings of shame. So yeah, when you're proud and you want to be seen and you want the attention, and frankly, we all do. I mean, human beings mm-hmm. crave attention from the day they're, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's the day they're born, but from a few weeks or whatever. Immediately, they're wanting attention. So that's a real instinctive need. So yeah, it looks like there's all kinds of good ways to be seen and to want to be seen. Notice that even when that's all good, uh, what's revealed in that experience is your dependency on the other. Uh, because the other can revoke that, right? Right. You can be denied that. And in the rock star on the stage, you know, with all the thousands of people cheering and shouting, that person's in a, you know, potentially very precarious position because people could suddenly stop listening to the music and not like it anymore and walk out and they could not sell albums anymore. And that would be a kind of desperate loss. So they're dependent on that recognition. And that's the primordial shame or the fundamental shame, as Sartre calls it, is it that sense of your freedom being held hostage by some somebody else. Okay, but but look, when we're born, we are inherently dependent upon caregivers to stay alive. Yeah. And are, then yeah. if we want to have children, if we want to reproduce, we're in, dependent upon someone to cooperate <laughs> with us in that project. Yes. So we're dependent uh coming and going. And then also <laughs> when we become old and we can't take care of ourselves, we're dependent upon people to care for us. Yeah. So none of this is new. Why is Sartre getting all bent out of shape about it? It's just true. Well, okay, and and this extra part of it is not even new, uh, namely that in the middle, in between birth, copulation, and death, yes, there are moments filling your day when you are sensitive to the amount of attention and recognition and acknowledgement you're getting from other people. I mean, that's an ongoing feature of life that uh, is it's just pervasive. And so many projects, like to supposing what I want to do is, you know, teach philosophy or, or catch, you know, king crab. None of those are things that can really be done solo. You need to get a bunch of people in a ship to go out there. and Yeah, for all kinds of reasons. Capital, people need to invest. For all kinds of practical reasons, that's true. But yeah. again, think of a really micro kind of moment. Like I, I had a 
professor, well, a colleague, an older colleague uh, one time who I liked to stop on the street and talk with. And sometimes he was in a pretty foul mood. Mm -hmm. And one time he was coming towards me and I stopped and I I sort of was stopping to start a conversation, said, how are you doing? And he just said, I don't want to talk about it. And he kept walking straight past me. Mm -hmm. Now, I kind of knew not to take it personally, but it was jarring because he was refusing any kind of rapport or interaction or whatever. And that right. that's startling and kind of upsetting. So, again, this is a basic human need for acknowledgement, recognition, prestige. And Sartre wasn't the first person to ever say that, right? But uh, I think what's original in this is that that is the way in which we are fundamentally related to each other, is in this precarious unstable, and he thinks conflictual kind of relationship that can, in principle, never be resolved. So does he think it's a zero-sum game? Does he think, if I get recognition, you're forced to be my fan or, or <laughs> something like that? <laughs> I Here's, okay, as I understand the view, and it's subtle, it's easy to caricature it because it's easy. Sure. What most people say is, Sartre thinks we're just constantly at war with each other, and it's like Huiclo, it's like No Exit, where these characters are just uh, at each other's throats and it's love and it's hate and it's drama and isn't this all hyperbolic and kind of histrionic and an exaggeration but actually if you read it carefully it turns out there's much more nuance so it's not that we're doomed to be in very asymmetric relations I mean Sartre was a lifelong socialist and fighting for equality and mutual respect and dignity he thought the world could be a hell of a lot better in terms of mm-hmm. attaining some kind of equality so he really believed in that as a political aspiration but here's what I understand the view to be it's that when you realize that there is no happy balance between consciousnesses because they have to view each other as either subjects or objects then there are several possibilities one is to just live with that ambiguity and to be constantly walking this sort of tightrope and um, when he talks about love he says love is this kind of impossible aspiration to having a sort of perfect balance and it's love when you're actually aspiring to something that's paradoxical and can never happen, mm-hmm. which is that you're both subjects, objects at the same time, and it all just sort of settles into something stable. That'll never happen. But love always has this imbalance built into it, this perturbation, which is what makes it the thing it is. But now, if you can't tolerate that, you might want to then go to one extreme or the other, which is to just be the subject to the other's object or just to be an object to the other's gaze. And those are what he calls sadism and masochism. And those are really hopeless projects. They're doomed to failure, but they are kind of desperate attempts to get out of this. Well, now, why is it doomed to failure? Like, if 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 I think what I'd really love to do is spank somebody, <laughs> and I find someone, and what they would really uh-huh. love to do is to be spanked by somebody, yeah. then what's the problem? Uh-huh. The problem is that there's something contradictory in the goal of this, he thinks. Um, now, so think about your example. The person who wants to be spanked, um, wants to, let's suppose that person is delighting in the idea of just being the inert object of the other person's freedom. Yeah, sure. And it's the other person who has all the freedom, all the subjectivity. The the person has to have taken this up as a project. Mm -hmm. In other words, to be the object is to have gotten something you set out freely to be, and your freedom is already mixed in with it. And there's just no way you can be a pure object without just being like a corpse or dead or whatever. So the impossibility of the masochistic aspiration is that 
it would have to stop being your project in order to have been completed uh-huh. or to be uh, satisfied. And on the sadist side, the problem is that it's a person you want to objectify. It's a consciousness you want to, as it were, reduce to the level of an object. Mm-hmm. And if it were really just an object, it would be a sex doll or whatever, and those get boring, apparently, pretty quickly. But if it's still a person, then that person could, at any moment, look you in the eye and, as it were, stop playing along and rob you of your position as the sole, as it were, monotheistic... Make you feel like a schmo. <laughs> yeah, Make exactly. you feel like a schmo with your paddle and your sex toy and all that. Yes, I think that's true. Exactly, um, it's humiliating. And then, it, yeah. and then also, that person who strives to be humiliated, like, they're like... You have to humiliate me the way I want you to humiliate yeah. me. And then suddenly they're like, but they're doing exactly what I'm telling them to do. That's the opposite of what I wanted. Okay. That's so that seems topping from the bottom, I think. Yeah, exactly. Right. And yeah. Sartre thinks that this is all going to end up in a mess. There's, well, there's just no um, way out of it. I mean, in other words, the masochistic and the sadistic fantasies are fantasies. Right. And to make sense, even as they conceive of themselves, they already have to be contradictory. They have to be contradicting themselves. By the way, it strikes me that it's fun to talk about this in the X-rated version, yeah. but it comes up in all sorts of G-rated versions yeah. where like, there's like the person who's the interesting bore mm-hmm. that they always want you to listen to them. And they say really interesting things, mm. but ultimately they become really boring mm. because you don't want to hear someone say interesting things. You kind of want someone occasionally to ask you what you have to say. Oh, yeah. So the boring person is a little bit like the sadist. They just want to talk and talk and talk and have other yeah. people listen to them. <laughs> um, and then sometimes I'll find myself, I'll take the standpoint of the conversational masochist uh-huh. and just be like tell me a bunch of things that i didn't even know uh-huh. i was interested in yeah. and get me interested in them right but then i'll be like wait a second this is getting kind of boring yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> you could turn around on your heel and walk away at any moment and so you're never just going to be a passive listener but i can't help thinking that like like when you and i talk mm. then sometimes something between us comes to be and oh yeah i'm neither dominating it nor dominated by it it's just kind of coming into Existence. Oh, yeah. You know, Sartre, I think, is not very good on something that is, I think it's much better in Heidegger and Merleau-Ponty, which is this idea of a kind of shared world, a common world. Mm-hmm. He really thinks of us as kind of monads. Right. Kind of consciousnesses. Each of us has a world, a milieu, an experience, and they're kind of excluded from each other in some basic sense. Now, I don't mean that like I've got inner thoughts and you you don't know what they are and vice versa because Sartre does think that even my innermost thoughts or qualities or anything like that are in principle visible to the other so Sartre really does think we see right through each other this is the thing that I think is really original in his picture as much as mm-hmm. kind of in a certain sense egoistic as it is it's not epistemologically opaque he thinks there's nothing inside your mind or soul or consciousness that somebody else can't see. We're totally open. Well, tell me if I'm using this word right. Yeah. Is it sort of axiologically opaque that what is important to me is something that is inherently not shared? And that's why I'm always sort of forcing it on someone else or they're forcing it on me. Is that what axiology means? Axiological has to do with value. So Yeah, um, that's what I feel that in some sense it's it's axiologically opaque even if it's not epistemologically opaque that what's what i value Uh, is what i value and all i can do is no well i don't think so because i think sartre thinks that whether what we've done is good or bad or right or wrong or worthy of our commitment is also held hostage to other people in other words um i don't think sartre thinks that i can 
by myself constitute the value of something by just choosing it. He does think we do that and we try that, but our whole existence is a trying to do that. And as soon as we're trying to do it, somebody else could challenge me on it and rob me of my valuation. So here's an example from No Exit. Garcin, uh, among the things he's ashamed of, first of all, he was he was not just cheating on his wife. I seem to remember he was bringing women home and, and sleeping with them while his wife was sleeping in the next room. And it was just torture and right. humiliating and awful. It's all terrible. But now, I don't want to say there's a particular country in Europe that's always doing that kind of thing, but <laughs> it kind of seems like there's. Anyway, go on. Yeah, we we're not, we're not going to name names. But, yeah. um, but he also deserted uh, his military service and wound up being shot by a firing squad, which is why he's uh-huh. in hell. Uh, and now the question he's grappling with is he thought he had reasons to do it and he's trying to make excuses for himself. And the question is whether he was a coward. Mm-hmm. And I think it's Inez who knows she can she can torture him with this by saying you were a coward. Right. And he wants to say, no, I'm not. Now, Sartre thinks that there's no real truth about that because it's always up for grabs. But it's up for grabs in just this way that how you think of yourself, the other is intruding on that. And you have no control over whether other people think you were a coward. You'll have nothing to say about that. So I think, and if this is what you meant, like values, I don't think Sartre even thinks that you have sort of total authority or autonomy about what's valuable. Right. I think Sartre is a kind of anti-realist about value. I think he thinks there aren't any facts about what's valuable. There's always people freely valuing this or that. And what's going to turn out to be valuable is going to be as it were, the resolution of those battles. But I think well, he really does think we, those are battles. If yeah. we live in a Sartrean universe, yeah. if Sartre is right, yeah. and I want to just be the best guy ever and just go around making people feel great, I could do that, right? Because they're vulnerable to my gaze. So I could just look at people and be like, you're terrific. You're not a coward. <laughs> and like, yeah, you're looking through the keyhole, but don't worry about it. Everybody has their moments. You know, um, like, do I have it in my power to make everybody else happy? See, I'm trying to think of how that might... Uh, unfold like no uh, I, I believe Sartre <laughs> seems to be a curmudgeon so he might be like yep yeah you'll do that but that's humiliating to those people well it may be humiliating <laughs> that they rely on on Eric to make them feel good and they know deep down he could withdraw it at any well, moment well there's all kinds of reasons and even if I promise I won't do that like Sartre will not trust me well there's all kinds of reasons that will go badly I think partly is that if people see that that's all you ever do they won't take your praise very seriously and they'll okay, start thinking okay, I enough. think it might not be dignified for you I think it might be that everybody thinks you're a kind of a kook who says this kind of thing to flatter people and therefore like it's flattery and who needs that interesting because they might actually get sick of it and hearing you know you don't well what if i said i read sart and my understanding <laughs> is the way to make a, the world a better place is to have everybody going around and and making each other feel better uh they might say well that's really sweet but i don't feel acknowledged by that i mean i you're you're acting on a formula and you're applying it to me and isn't that kind of alienating and uh so what do people really want yeah what do people really want well good question i think what sartre thinks people really want they will never get um but what is it so so all of these human relationships and even a love and all of our aspirations this is the part that starts sounding really pessimistic but sartre doesn't think it is every effort for any project or goal or aspiration we ever have, Sartre thinks is doomed to failure. Uh-huh. Our whole lives are sort of have the structure of a failure. So there's no getting mm. around that. The question is how you fail. I guess it's like the Beckett okay. thing, fail better, right? Right. But the failure is built into the process. But what people want... My joke, by the way, is if I want to fail worse, what's that to Beckett? <laughs> 
Why is he on my case? If I'm like Mr. Beckett, I just assume I'm tired. I'm going to like to fail worse. Does he have any problem with that? Uh, Beckett. Let's see. When it comes to Beckett, I thought I read that. I, I can't remember where that text comes from. Everybody quotes it. Do you remember what text it's from? Is it from Worst Word Ho? It's of the flavor of Worst Word Ho. Okay. We have to look that up. I always heard that. I might be wrong. I always heard that as somebody more talking to himself, like mm-hmm. advice to myself. I, I think so. I think it is a one-character play. But let's talk about Sartre for the time being. What I would like to do is for us to take our second break. That sounds good. Yeah, so well, he says we're want. doomed to failure. Yeah, because we always want something that's this impossible combination of what he calls the for itself and the in itself. Mm-hmm. And that's like subjectivity and objectivity. I see. I want to be a free subject, but I also want to be a thing. I want to be a finished, mm-hmm. accomplished thing. I want to be a professor or a poet or a musician right. or a hero or anything that I can only be in the eyes of other people, right? So I need uh-huh. them for it. But I wish I didn't need them for it, so yeah, I'm a cranky pants. Exactly, yeah. and, and, but you do need them for it, and you have no control over how they view you. But what you would really like is this, as I say, this impossible sort of happy balance that's both free subjectivity and also determinate kind of objectivity and finishedness of a thing, like I've got real qualities. Because Sartre doesn't think you really do. We're all just kind of acting and aspiring to Mm -hmm. qualities that we're always only on the way to having but never really having. There's other contexts in which he says this combination of the en soi, the in itself, and the pour soi, the for itself. He also thinks it's our concept of God, which is why he's an atheist, because he thinks it's not only that God doesn't happen to exist, he thinks God cannot exist, because it's a contradictory idea. But doesn't he think he also cannot exist? I mean, <laughs> well, like if he thinks people are paradoxical and people exist, that seems to be an argument that God could also oh, exist because paradoxical things can exist. Ah, uh, but here I think this may be why he says that our relations to others is not a fundamental structure of the for itself, because just the for itself as such is not paradoxical. Um, oh. It's only when it wants to be something in itself that it's setting out to try to do something it's never going to... But I'm tempted yeah. to say... It is baked in yeah. to want to be something for other people. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I agree with you. Yeah, I, I don't really follow Sartre's, as I say, kind of lingering Cartesian idea that there's a pure consciousness, which is in principle uh, untainted by its relation with others. So wait, I I'm, I'm want to follow this yeah. God thing. Okay. Because yeah. does he say that the for itself, which is a human consciousness, right? Yeah is inherently paradoxical or not? Well, here's what I think. I don't think he thinks it is in principle, but I think in like uh, in fact it will be because we have these relations to others that we're as it were So why is God inherently paradoxical? Well, because God is our uh idealized notion of what it would be for a being to be both contingent and necessary at the same time. It, oh, uh, so maybe that's more like Jesus, but not like the Hindu Atman. Oh, maybe. Maybe the Hindu Atman is cool for Sartre because it's just sort of ah. being itself and being knowing itself, and it's not. Ah, uh, so it does know it itself. Need it. So it knows itself. It knows itself. What does it, it, know, knows about itself. it? What does it know about itself? That it is, I think. Well, if it's just that, maybe. Maybe that would be all right. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it needs anything, I th- I see. <laughs> for example. Does it have qualities? Yeah. No. Okay, well, then that's better because I think Sartre's thinking of a god that's determinate. And uh, like has genuine properties like omnipotence, omniscience, benevolence, and yeah, well, they the world have and... their own paradoxical way of saying. They say there is Nirguna Brahman, which is God without qualities, and there's, ah, there's Saguna Brahman, aha. which is God with qualities. Aha. But they're sort of paradoxically the same. Aha. 
Okay, so uh, maybe this is getting closer to Sartrean territory where he was saying, well, so, I mean, you're talking about something that's contradictory and impossible. Uh, Sartre is a kind of rationalist, too, remember. He's, okay. he's not, he's not okay. happy to openly admit the, the reality of these paradoxical structures. He thinks that these are forms of sort of irrationality that, that may be okay. inevitably part of the human drama, but they're not going to describe reality. So we are tempted to try and do things that are impossible, yeah. and we would be well served to stop it? No, we can't help it, it. I think I think we're stuck with it. I think we're stuck okay. being beings that are trying impossibly to be something determinate, and we'll never succeed. Uh, now, as I said, this sounds very like if it's all failure, then doesn't it just look hopeless? I think Sartre thinks this is the sort of wonder and kind of beauty and drama of life. And it's exciting. And it's, you know, so the fact that it's unstable is a basic fact. And and he's trying right. to avoid sort of utopianism and idealism about um, he, he's trying to be pretty realistic about Again, the instability and indeterminacy of human relationships and human projects right. generally. Like uh, it almost yeah. it almost reminds me of the gift of the Magi, if you know that story. Remind uh, me. So she has beautiful hair, and he has a lovely watch, and they each are poor, oh. and they want to give something to the other one. Oh yes. So she cuts her hair to buy him a fob for his watch, uh-huh. and he pawns his watch or sells his watch to get her a comb for her hair. Yeah. But then the author says, who's to say that this was not the best gift that was ever exchanged ah. by a couple in love? Ah. So it failed, but there was something cool about the failure. Yeah, that's um, interesting. And you right. could imagine telling a Sartrean story about this couple that he kind of wants to be the giver, the better gift. Yeah. You know, to be the better lover. And she kind of wants to give him the better lift, gift and be the better lover. And they sort of both end up creating a fiasco yeah. where there's no watch and there's no hair. Right. But... It's a glorious fiasco. They yeah. they failed better. They failed really well. Right, right. I think that, yeah, I see that's an interesting Sartrean uh, take on that. And I was going to say that, you know, the fact that I can never manage to be a professor or a father. Now, I, I think this is hyperbolic at best. So I do think one has to uh, interpret this in a way that it could come around seeming plausible. But he really thinks that uh, I like to call myself a professor. Other people call me a professor. And we're all kind of playing the game of acting like that's what I am. And it's not that I'm not. It's just that it's a it's a work in progress. And I never cross the finish line, as it were, and become that. It's always something that's problematic or in question or a kind of up for grabs. Uh, now, what's right about that, see, is that at any moment, almost literally— uh, I could lose that status. I think it's completely right. In fact, I find people who think that they're unproblematically a husband or a father or a professor or right. a writer uh, really drive right. me up the wall. Like, I, yeah, no, I, I don't like too. people like yeah, that. Yeah. No, because it's not settled. I mean, it's still always a little bit unsettled, but the unsettledness is the is the humanity of it. Yeah, it's the name of the game. And if you get rid of that, you become super boring and sort of a frightening monster yeah. in a weird way. And I think that I think the way Sartre th- sees this, and this is uh, again part of his French heritage with um, Descartes and Rousseau and all this uh, freedom, is absolutely central to his whole story. The fact that we never settle into just simply intrinsically being something determinate. That means that we're free, yes, uh, radically free throughout our entire lives, and I think that's why he's he doesn't think it's a pessimistic picture. It's optimistic because um, 
although the arc is sort of never completed, and as I say, you don't cross the finish line and finally become a professor or a poet or a composer in the way the teapot is a teapot, means that right up through all of your entire life, your possibilities are open in principle. I think I think it's a grandly optimistic right. picture. And the reason I was drawn to this when I first started looking at it in high school when I was a teenager, I have to confess, Sartre was my great philosophical hero okay. for, you know, my early years in philosophy. And the I never thought it was a pessimistic, bleak picture. I thought it was always absolutely energizing and liberating, this, this doctrine of dramatic, wide-open, radical freedom. That's the spirit. I wonder if we can give an optimistic spin on his uh, love is all about domination, which it's sort of like, mm-hmm. go in there and try and dominate the other person. And they're going to try and dominate you. <laughs> and and sometimes yeah. you'll win and sometimes you'll lose. But that'll be more fun. That'll be a more passionate and interesting and meaningful relationship than if you just sort of reach some kind of compromise. <laughs> so let me just emphasize, he's not a big fan of masochism and sadism. He's not. There is a fairly traditional element that comes in here because when he talks about sadism and masochism, he does point out that these are vices. Okay. And the reason they're thought of as vices is because they are, they are deliberate failures. In other words, these are projects in which you take up an inevitably failing project, knowing it's failing, and kind of wanting oh, to well, fail. That's and he does think that these are kind of aberrations, and he's not glorifying well, them Let, let me restate my thing. Go in there and try and get all the love you can, Play. and give all the love you can, and that will inherently sometimes push over the other person's boundaries, and sometimes their boundaries will get pushed by you, and that's better yeah. than sort of staying in your castle and sending out occasional... Uh, missives. That's right. I think it's a kind of celebration of our inevitable, unstable, chaotic, dramatic sociality, so that the idea would not be go in there to dominate. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea would be to go in there and play. Okay. I mean, competitive sports are like this, and they're wonderful. Play tennis with somebody, right? Yes. I mean, you're trying to win, and and it's only a game if there's a kind of asymmetry of effort and so on. Now, there are, of course, there are cooperative games. We haven't really talked about what he thinks of fundamentally cooperative relations. Uh, I'll, I can give you the short... Yeah, like bird watching. Like we're both trying to find birds, yeah. and together we find, look, yeah. there's a, a crested grout or whatever they're called. Yeah. Sartre seems to think, and I don't really follow this, but um, he really seems to think the only way we can form a kind of we subject, a plural subject, that's us, is if there's another plural subject that's them. Uh-huh. Um, and and there's o- the only way a group can be aware of itself as a unified group without this, uh, without, uh, how to put it, just this kind of individualistic, agonistic relations among each other is by forming itself as a single group in addition to another group. So you still get the same conflictual relation between one group and another at the group level. I, I don't know why he thinks that's I propose but that's what he says. that that yeah. should be a topic for another podcast. Absolutely. Is I, the I only agree. way right. for people to team yeah. up by having an enemy? Is it always us versus them? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good topic. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Have we brought this to a conclusion? I think we have. I think yeah. Sartre, I think people should read No Exit. And um, I think they should read, and I don't know if you've read, but he, Sartre wrote a little autobiography only up to age 10 no. <laughs> um, that's called The Words, uh, or I think it should have just been called Words, Les Mots. And it's about, the first half of it is about reading books and when he first started reading books. And the second half is writing. Wow. And we started like writing, writing little stories and stuff. And his idea was that his whole life was the project of being a writer. And this is maybe another topic for another episode. Sartre also thought that at the end of the day, 
everybody's life, if you look back on it, you will be able to see it as hanging together around a single fundamental choice they made. This is like a formula for writing a biography. If you look carefully enough, you'll see the kind of choice that was making their whole life hang together as a life. I don't know if I believe that or not, but he definitely thought it was true of himself. So it's a, it's a wonderful book. It's um, really beautiful. Right. Yeah, I certainly I can think of examples where people have made such a spectacularly bad choice that they will always be the person who made that choice. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, this was beautiful. I yeah. think this was a good episode. Good, me too. Okay. Okay, so everybody everybody at home, um, take this to heart and try and live this in your life in the week to come. Take the start to heart. Get your, yeah. get your start on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. see you next okay. week. Okay, peace. Bye-bye. This podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and edited by me, Taylor Carmen. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Terrifying Questions.